Today, we have a guest who is transforming the private debt markets. Nelson Chu is the founder and CEO of Percent, formerly known as Cadence, the leading digital securitization and investment platform for private credit. Nelson has built a marketplace to revolutionize private credit by leveraging technology and data to enable efficient price discovery and funding for originators so they can lower their cost of capital. The business has started to take off in the past year, with Percent recently completing their largest securitization ever, $144 million securitization for fat brands, and raising a $12.5 million Series A, led by White Star and B Capital. And to date, Percent has issued over $400 million in private credit transactions. Nelson has the Wall Street background to understand the private credit world and the startup background to understand how to build companies. Prior to founding Percent, he founded Luminary, a strategy consulting firm that specialized in helping companies build products and raise capital for growth. He also worked at BlackRock in their fixed income portfolio management strategy group and in the global wealth and investment management division at Bank of America. Nelson is also an active startup advisor and angel investor, investing into companies like BlockFi, Cadre, Careof, Clover Health, DVO1, Tela, and Uala. Nelson and I had a fascinating conversation about the future of debt capital markets and how Percent is changing the game for originators and investors as they leverage technology and data to bring transparency and speed to the market. We're going mainstream. Nelson, welcome to the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. How are you? All good. It's been, a, it's been a good week. It's been a good month, actually, for us. Definitely happy to, to dive into more details on that, uh, but excited for everything that we're going to be up to for the rest of the year. Yeah, gosh, you have closed a Series A. You have done your biggest securitization to date. Man, we have a lot to talk about. But first, before we get to all of that, I just like to level set things and have people really learn a bit more about you, your journey, and how you got there. I'd love to start with your background. You've worked on Wall Street. You've started companies. You've invested in companies including some that may have sparked some of that interest, like BlockFi, where you were an early investor and advisor. So what was your journey to what was called Cadence and is now called Percent? Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to think that everything I've ever done in my life has led me up to this point in a lot of ways. And I've drawn on skills from all of that past life, even before Wall Street, actually. Uh, when I was younger, I was very fortunate that my dad, middle-class family, my dad was willing to let me experiment with things that I was interested in trying. I, I bought a Mac in 2002 before it was very cool to have a Mac. And I taught myself Photoshop, taught myself movie making, taught myself all these different things. And that was sort of like sparked my creativity at an very early age before I uh, did my time in finance, if you will. Uh, and so that was the, the time I spent in Wall Street doing things like private wealth management, portfolio management, before realizing that this was just not the life for me. It was a very good learning experience just in terms of what I learned from working on Wall Street is a lot of what not to do in a lot of ways around ways to manage people, ways to build camaraderie with your team members. It was just a bit of a backstabby culture in a lot of ways, every man for himself. And that doesn't lead to good outcomes at the end of the day, nor does it lead to building a good team. But after Wall Street, 
had very high hopes for myself and a whole lot of ego in terms of knowing what to do and building a startup. I failed spectacularly within a six-month time frame. Working in finance obviously pays you well. I ended up burning through all of my cash in six months. And so when you're broke, you become a consultant. Uh, Single-person LLC marketed as something much bigger than that and stumbled my way through, pulled on the things that I learned prior from teaching myself Photoshop and doing pitch decks in finance to ultimately launch what was my first startup was a strategy consulting company that helped other startups build from the ground up, really teaching them the things that I had uh, made mistakes on along the way and blowing myself up, up in six months. Ultimately, it worked out well. The clients we worked with ended up raising about $300 million in venture capital financing, gave us the opportunity to be the first angel check in a lot of different companies, including the one that you mentioned, like BlockFi, uh, which has done well, and helped me get a lay of the land in a lot of ways around what is interesting, what's out there, what is exciting, and where the market is headed, because we saw so many different companies, and really ultimately was served as the genesis for what became Cadence and ultimately Percent. So it was life lessons well learned along the way over those, call it 10-year time frame, but even obviously when I was younger as well. What do you think was the most important or career defining lesson that you learned from that journey to, to now building percent today? When you run a services business, it's, it's a little bit crazy. It's very cash flow driven in a lot of ways. It teaches you a whole lot about the roller coaster that is managing your cash flow and your income saving your balance sheet along the way. I think the thing that has made me uh, really I guess, modestly successful, if you will, along the way, I want to define what we've done so far, but at least where we've gotten to where we are today is really the mentality that nothing's ever as bad as it seems and nothing's ever as good as it seems. And to be as level-headed as you can throughout the entire process means that nothing really phases you. And like, sun comes up tomorrow, team will still be there, and just don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's not going to work out according to plan either. That has served us well. I've always thought that the startup journey. And, and even if you atomize it down to every single day is literally like a roller coaster. You, you encapsulated what a startup truly, truly is specifically on the world of finance and what you're building with percent. Did you learn anything on wall street from a finance perspective or productization of, of certain financial products that has informed your views on finance or particularly kind of securitization of what you're doing with percent? The PR answer would be, it was a fantastic experience. And I learned so much much about fixed income and all of that. And if you look at my LinkedIn, I was fixed income portfolio management. So theoretically, I should have learned something about fixed income. Uh, unfortunately, at BlackRock, I did not learn anything about fixed income. I was definitely more on the trade operations, trade compliance and settlement side of the world. So you really didn't see anything. And actually, you didn't have to know anything about fixed income to do your job at the end of the day. So here I am running a debt capital market securitization company, having had zero experience in fixed income and capital markets and securitization. Funny how life works out that way. But it's worked out okay. I've gotten a crash course through the team that is significantly more well-versed than I am on debt capital markets. It's worked out you know, just fine in terms of us being able to, to do what we need to do and accomplish what we need to accomplish. You know, that's great. I think another piece of this is obviously, particularly with fintech companies, hiring people who have specific skill sets and expertise that enables you to build a business you want to build. Going back to the beginning of Percent, what was the light bulb moment that really got you to think of the idea to build Percent? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, I had a consulting company and we saw a lot of different clients and companies along that along the way. One of them that stuck out or a couple of them that stuck out actually was there were a lot of people doing non-bank lending, if you will. These were back to receivables companies and things like that. And one of them that we had uh, in the later stage of the consulting company before we shut it down 
uh, was factoring invoices against Whole Foods and Costco for like granola bar companies and things like that. And when you looked at factor receivables, for those of you who, who don't know, it's almost like essentially advancing somebody who's like a granola bar manufacturer, the money they would be able to take to actually produce the product that Whole Foods is looking for, because Whole Foods is going to be looking for a million dollar order size that the you know, granola bar company that's only done $30,000 in revenue its entire life would never be able to fulfill. And so they will catch a spread against that. Let's say the invoice is a million dollars, they need $500,000 to produce it. They'll give the lender or the non-bank lender, let's say $50,000 and they pocket 450. So that's a good math and a good trade. They'll do that all day, every day, which is great for them. And it makes this economy work. But these invoices are super short duration. They're like 45 days, generally from start to finish. And you can get that $50,000 spread as an example. That is very lucrative for everybody involved. When we saw the market, we were thinking, okay, so you have a lot of other alternative investment platforms out there. The minimums are like $25,000. You're going to lock your investment up for three to five years, which is effectively a market cycle at that point in time, which is kind of risky. And you don't really know what goes into it. Like, how did it do? What's going on? All those different things are a bit of a question mark. We thought if there's Things like factor receivables out there that are 45-day, they're not going to be $25,000 minimums to fulfill that, that invoice. Why can't we do something a little bit differently, a bit of a better mousetrap with shorter duration investment opportunities that are called in the sub-nine-month range, lower minimums in the $500 range, and comparable yields. So 9 to 16% is a bit of a sweet spot that everyone seems to be able to target. With that in mind, we thought, why not do it a little differently? And that's how percent came to be. Uh, before we realize that there's a much bigger vision than that uh, from here. Uh, but at the very least, that's a good starting point. Event. So uh, tell us what percent is today. And then you mentioned the much bigger vision here. You're doing a lot on the data side as well. would love to hear what that bigger vision is. Yeah, absolutely. If you were to look on our website, uh, we really do look like a lot of other alternative investment platforms out there. We do have some of our differentiating factors being the duration, but I think other people have gone shorter as well in response to what we've been doing. We've got lower minimums or lowest minimums. I would say probably around $500. Other people have come down on that as well to accommodate. But I think what really makes us stand out is our transparency around the actual underlying asset performance. Traditionally, in private credit, which is the asset class that we play in, private credit encompasses things like the factor receivables, like I talked about, small business lending, consumer loans, but it is a bit of a catch-all. In that instance, there is very little transparency into how these loans are doing at the end of the day. We thought if we're going to make a platform that has investment products on there, we should probably have actual transparency around performance because that goes hand in hand. That's really where we differentiate ourselves. We have surveillance reporting on all of our originators on a daily, if not weekly basis. It gives investors the confidence that when they make an investment to a product, they can track it. They can see how it does. They can see if it's performing according to plan, not going according to plan. In that time frame, uh, because our durations are so short, we as the structure have the ability to actually take it and restructure it uh, in that time frame to be able to better protect investors, which is our end goal at the end of the day. Uh, but doing all of this made us realize that, wow, we've been building a lot of this technology and this infrastructure ourselves uh, for doing deals in this market. And if we can get the benefit of it, and uh, we have definitely, that means that others can as well. Really, at its core, we're looking to build that infrastructure layer for private credit markets to be able to actually facilitate transactions in an end state at hopefully about a fraction of cost of what it would take today. And we can actually speed up the velocity of transactions as well. The market itself for private credit has grown at about a 12%-ish growth rate in the last call it, five or six years. But the tech-enabled side, these like VC-backed non-bank lenders, which is really our target market, have grown at a significantly faster pace than that. 
And so they all need debt capital and they've been beholden to the legacy markets, which have no infrastructure and Excel is effectively the infrastructure. We give them the opportunity to actually make it a lot more efficient than they've ever been able to do it before. And then that's just, it's a win-win for everybody in the industry, whether you're somebody who needs that capital, somebody who wants to earn yield, or somebody who is here responsible for making these products go. Well, you talk about making the market more efficient. Why is it so important for the ecosystem that there is a marketplace like percent that's lowering the cost of capital for many of these originators? Yeah, I think it's actually a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. There will be definitely originators. So originators are those who need that capital that are mispriced today. They actually should have a lower cost of capital because they have very good underwriting standards. They have great performance. They may not have a huge track record, but at the very least, they should get credit for the tech that they've built. And then there's legacy originators who have no tech. And that is a question mark. Like, should you have such a low cost of capital, given that you actually can't even track uh, how this loan is being paid back on a regular basis. Really, it just comes down to solving that information asymmetry and essentially pricing things properly at the end of the day. That's what we're here to do. Uh, I don't think there's anybody who would say no to the fact that they have better pricing transparency. If you can deliver pricing transparency, you can deliver a more efficient market. If you deliver a more efficient market, investors are happy and originators are happy as well. Where would many of these originators normally go in a world before percent for credit facilities or accessing capital? And then what would those terms generally look like? It's a good question. So going back to what I was mentioning earlier, Excel is the infrastructure. So it is very much Excel, phone calls and emails. But even worse than that, it's very outbound oriented. Uh, And so uh, rather than going to a singular source where you can, as an originator, park all your data, park all your information about your portfolio and your performance, and then have people come to you, it's like raising venture capital financing. It's let's go outbound and and a little bit of a spray and pray model to everybody and then see who comes back. That's going to be reaching out to your high net worth investors at an early stage, your family offices as you get a little bit bigger, your credit funds as you get a little bigger than that. And then ultimately, by the time you have that type of track record that a credit fund or a bank is being able to provide capital for you, you're at the stage where people know who you are and you should be able to raise capital more easily. But that early stage side where it's very, very outbound oriented is extremely painful. The average originator is spending about 350 hours a year managing and raising debt capital, which is horrendous because that's not their actual business. Their actual business is originating loans that they can actually provide capital to and underwrite the borrowers and things like that. That's a tremendous insight when you think about how one of those originators, particularly these tech-enabled originators, I, I, I worked at one company called Mosaic, and we were trying to figure out how do we get our cost of capital right when we didn't have an underwriting history, we had no track record, we had to underwrite these assets, but then we had to also find the right cost of capital and then figure out how do you actually do this in a profitable way. This is so important when you think about what this means for the evolution of these platforms and not only how they raise debt capital to fund these loans that they originate, which is really where their innovation is centralized around, the innovation, but also how they raise equity capital for their businesses. And and, and then the owners of those businesses can actually own more of these businesses in, in a case like yours, if you're lowering the cost of capital. So how important is this for the ecosystem? And how does this change how these originators can actually think about building their business? It's incredibly important. In the old world, if you will, pre-percent, the opportunity to lower your cost of capital was actually few and far between. You would actually sign some sort of term sheet that locked you in for two to three years that had a ability, you have to pay down money in order to get them out. It was pretty onerous in terms of the the pricing that they were offering. And they were going to average around probably 19 to 26%. It's sort of the sweet spot, so a full uh, 10% 
10% higher than what we would be able to offer today. And the reason why we can offer it uh, is because around the tech-enabled underwriting that we do, but also our ability to actually get capital from a broader audience. It's not just one place. And so retail investors have a lower expectation around what yield should be that they would make them happy. But ultimately, we let the market decide. If the market is totally messed up, like during COVID times, and, and everything's out of whack, uh, then the market's going to say, 12%, not going to cut it. I want 18%. Then we'll clear it at 18%. Uh, but because the durations are so short, it allows the originator to actually say, okay, two months from now, I've done better, or I've done just as good as I did before, so I have more of a track record. 18 should be 16. 16 then should become 12. 12 should become eight. We've seen so many of our originators bring their cost of capital down, even in the course of just one year, which normally would be in the old world, they'd be stuck at the same rate, that same expensive rate for a whole year. And that's why it's so accretive for them. On top of that, we give them paths to grow up. Our goal is for every single one of these originators to graduate into the institutional markets. And we think they all have the potential to be able to do that. Uh, so when he talked about the Fat Brands deal earlier, that was you know transaction number three, at least for them. It was a $40 million deal, another $40 million deal, and now a $144 million opportunity. That is the story we want to tell. And we want to be able to get these originators from point A on our retail side, all the way to point C on the institutional side. And do you, do you think that there's a place for your platform to work with the institutional side, or is this really more for the individual investor or high net worth community to access attractive private debt yield effectively? I think we can definitely get on the institutional side. It's why we've been doing so many deals on that front. Right now, on the retail side and for retail credit investors and family offices, we've done a little over 200 deals at this point uh, in the call it 20 months-ish that we've been around. On the institutional side, we've done so a lot to catch up on. But every time we do a deal, we learn a lot. We learn exactly what it takes to do a deal, to close it, who's involved, and all the flow of funds that happen in that instance and, and what work goes into it. Uh, and all the same way that we productize the process for structuring and syndication on the retail side and the smaller side, you can productize the structuring and syndication on the institutional side as well. Think of it almost like we have a massive toolbox of things available to us as a structurer, as a syndicator, as an investor. And it's just what levers do we unlock for whichever target market we're going after. But it is very applicable from vertically integrating it from small, medium to large. And then as you think about kind of building what is in some senses, maybe this is a lazy way of describing it, but an exchange effectively, or a way for people to bid on the yield at which they would clear a transaction. How did you think about structuring that? And how do you think about both the, the retail investor side of that and the institutional investor side of that? Yeah. In a lot of ways, we're bringing institutional type functionality to retail investors. So Dutch auctions are not new to institutional markets. They do that all day, every day, and all the time. And that helps set the price based on what demand looks like. We launched Dutch auction during peak COVID. I think it was in March or April because we had seen a massive amount of outflows go out of our uh, platform. And we let every dollar that wanted to go out, went out. Again, double-edged sword. If you give liquidity every month or every two months, investors are going to take it if there's the opportunity or the need for it at that point in time. And we got feedback from our investors saying they got margin calls in their accounts. That's why they needed the cash. So I was like, look, go for it. You do you um, and take care of yourself. But at the same time, it was, okay, so 9% wasn't good enough. I totally get that. Is 12% good enough? Is 14% good enough? And so we launched a haphazard Dutch auction tool through HubSpot during COVID times at the end of March just to get it to go to see, okay, all these funds are leaving. How do we bring it back in? And it started to work. We started to close all of our deals in that time frame. Money that went out, went out. Money that came in was because they were opportunistic. They're like, I'm not going to get 16% forever, so I might as well ride it while I have it. And 
and that worked out really well. So the market dictated the price, and they got used to an institutional-type feature very quickly. And soon, it's going to be integrated into our actual investment process much more seamlessly, so you can actually see an order book and how it comes in. And then we put power back in the hands of the originators who need that capital to say, do I want more expensive capital but more money, or do I want less expensive capital and less money? And it really is your choice at the end of the day. It's completely up to you. That optionality, again, uh, adds even more benefit for the originator. So how do the originators think about this then? Is this something that they understand that the free market decides, or is this something that they have to wrap their head around, given that they've been used to something much more, generally speaking, more structured in the past, like this is the price I'm going to have to pay, and it is what it is, I'll structure things around that, versus something that may change over time given investor appetite? Yeah, there's always the concept of a rollover risk, if you will. Every month or two, if we're doing this that frequently, there is a concern that what if you don't raise enough money the second time? And it's on us to, to make sure that there is enough demand on that side. But there's a lot of market tailwinds in our favor on the demand side to ensure that that isn't an issue. Obviously, rates are staying low. Uh, and They've been low for a while. They're going to continue to stay low for the foreseeable future. Uh, and in that instance, when there is a constant search for yield by this audience, this investor audience, uh, you're going to have excess demand. And so we generally, on average, have about over 2x the demand that we have on supply. And so we're going to try and keep it at that level to make sure that we continue to close deals and reduce that rollover risk. But from an education standpoint for originators, the things that matter to them the most are cost of capital and uh, strategically aligned structures. So I don't want you to have a metric kind of warrant on my business. I don't want you to have a personal guarantee against my business. I don't want any of those things. And I want a structure that works in our favor and a cost of capital that I can afford. When they see this, they see we have enough case studies now of people starting high and going low, uh, reacting to that and growing their program over time that they just get it at this point. We haven't had anyone really not understand how it works. And it's been a very, very easy process to get them on board. That's fantastic. I know we've touched on different aspects of breaking down an alt investment platform, but I want to go through from start to finish how one of these platforms works. I think it's always helpful for people to kind of really understand and visualize it. So from sourcing to diligence to distribution and liquidity, that's a full life cycle or chain of, of one of these platforms. Sure. On the sourcing side, how do you think about sourcing originators and effectively investment product that's then on your platform that your investors can then decide to access? There's multiple bars that an originator has to clear in order to even get into our ecosystem. So the first and foremost that we do, we have multiple different channels of source, expanding that through a couple of key features and products we're launching in Q3. But Either way, let's assume that we have a pretty wide funnel of originators at the top. We'll run basic checks against them of like, are you actually a real company? Are your assets real? Are you real? Did you pass our background check? All these different things that we do. And if you pass all of that, then yes, you're in our ecosystem and we could potentially run a note program uh, with you. At that point, it's up to the underwriter, which is us, to be able to decide, is this quality enough to actually put it in front of our investors or do they need to improve on certain things? There's a whole... Uh, slew of different criteria that we run it against, stress testing against our models and things like that to ensure uh, that this is quality enough to be able to create a structure that works for our investors. If they pass that hurdle, then it's saying, okay, so what is that structure? Uh, and that structure is we have call it 30 or 40 levers we can pull from around things like the first loss cushion that's in place, the control of the cash, the 
over-collateralization requirements, all these different things, the APY, obviously, that we can toggle to figure out what is going to work for this so that we can create an A-grade structure around this caliber of originator. If and only then that passes, and we all agree, and it passes through Greenlight Committee internally and our credit committee, uh, then it goes out to investors. Investors have the opportunity to diligence it, look at the surveillance reporting that we've created around that originator, and get comfortable with it themselves to ultimately make that investment. But it doesn't stop there, like you mentioned. The ability for an investor to follow up and see how it's performing throughout the life of the note is super, super important. The average platform doesn't necessarily always have that information versus we make it a prereq to even work with us. So they need to have some layer of tech-enabled nature in their wheelhouse to be able to even provide us that information. But it pays dividends. The ones who provide more frequent data are the ones who get lower cost of capital. The incentives are all aligned at the end of the day. As the investors monitor the performance and assume that it does perform as expected, it reaches a point where they ultimately want to get liquidity. And we've structured in call options into all of our short duration notes to be even shorter. If it's a nine-month note, the originator has the choice to call it within month one or month two, whatever it may be. That way, investors can say, that was great. I need the cash now. So I'm going to pull it out within two months. On that point, are... Uh, does every investor have to agree as an investor group? Because you're having investors who might invest 10, 20,000, 30,000 a pop, but it might be a 500,000 or million dollar transaction, or in the, the fat brand's case, $144 million. What if some investors want out, but others don't? It's actually up to the discretion of the investor. Uh, the $500 investor can say, I'm the only one that's going out this time, but peace out, guys. And he's the only one that leaves, or she's the only one that leaves. Then someone else comes in to fill in that $500 hole. It's not like a democratic process, majority rule, where everyone has to say, we're going to leave or we're going to stay. Uh, That optionality is 100% dependent on the investor and their own needs at the end of the day. Interesting, interesting. And have you created a, a liquidity mechanism for that to happen or and, and like a technology enabled way for that to work? Like many of these firms are creating a secondary market liquidity mechanism? We're not a exchange. Uh, and for regulatory reasons, we don't want to be one. But at the very least, we do offer the opportunity for investors to be notified when there is a rollover coming up, which is what we call it, a liquidity event. They have the choice to roll it over immediately and get first look before other investors see it since they've already in the deal. Uh, and they can decide whether they want to downsize, keep it the same, or upsize. They, as long as they have cash in the account, they can actually do more at that at that point in time. If they choose to do nothing, then the cash gets returned to them. That's our indication that they don't want to roll it over when the time is right. This is inherent liquidity. It's not legal liquidity in the sense that there's no secondary market created, but it's effectively the same thing. Most people know how to manage their cash needs within a 30-day time frame. This gives them that optionality to be able to do that. That's fantastic. That's one of the things we'll get to this and after we get through the diligence side, which is important. But on the distribution side, particularly when it comes to the high net worth community, them and their advisors are generally really, really interested in liquidity and what that means, particularly in the alt space. So I definitely want to get to that. But before we have to go step by step, as your platform does, on the diligence side, what type of diligence are you doing to determine what originator should be on your platform? And how do you balance the marketplace dynamic of having as much inventory on the platform versus keeping the quality really high? That's something we struggle with all the time. I think that the answer is realistically uh, anything that we underwrite ourselves and put our name on, that's reputational risk on the line. So let's take financial risk out of the picture, but just straight reputational standpoint, as more of these defaults, you lose your credibility in the market and people are just going to leave and they're going to churn out. And I don't blame them. They, they should because you're not a very good underwriter as a result. How would that compare to in a less 
marketplace construction, how would that compare to the lenders who are are lending to many of these originators or, or even just originators lending to the, the borrowers on their platform? How would that default rate compare to those kind of those other constituents? Yeah, absolutely. It's a pretty wide mix and it depends on the asset class. Uh, but for example, if you think about factor receivables, like that example we gave earlier around Whole Foods and Costco, the likelihood of them not paying is pretty low. Uh, unless something dramatically went wrong, they will likely pay. So that default rate on factoring invoices tends to be pretty low. It's the best way to look at it. Uh, for things like small business lending, especially during COVID, you had some really astronomically high numbers. I've seen some in the range of like 25 to 35% um, in default rate, which is not unexpected given that people had no income coming in and no revenue into the business. But private credit as a whole, if you look at like, the funds who are in this space, you're going to look at probably around a give or take a high single digit, low double digit um, default rate across the board. And they manage that accordingly as a result. I think we've punched significantly above our weight in that instance. That's credit to the team in building structures that hold up. So the default rate of the originator, um, while it matters in terms of how we calculate the yield and how we calculate all the things that we look at from our levers, it doesn't have any bearing on the structure because the structure can perform even in the event of a 15% default of the portfolio or like a 20% default of the portfolio. And that's our job. That is why you don't ideally as an investor want to invest in single loans uh, because the chance of default means it's all or nothing uh, versus a diversified portfolio with a structure protects you at the end of the day. And that's what our job is here to do. Well, on that point, it's a great segue into distribution. And one preceding question to distribution is, how do you think about productization of the different investment products on your platform. Yes, people can invest into single private debt opportunities, but given that you're providing diversified access to various types of originators and different types of underlyings as well, do you think ever think about creating a cross-platform fund that just has every single offering on your platform and investors can just invest in that, set it and forget it and get exposure? I'm going to uh, plead the fifth on that one. There are things that we're definitely working on, um, and I'm excited to reveal those in time, whether it's a fund or something else. But it is top of mind for us because obviously every investor has different needs. They're going to want to do things differently. Our goal is to provide as much optionality as possible to solve whatever use case an investor may have. I think if you look at it today, we have things ranging from one month, two months, to three months, all the way up to 36 months. Uh, And we've seen investors diversify to the point where 60% 60% is set it and forget it for 36 months. And then the other 40% is, let me tinker around with this and see what asset classes I like. And that optionality is available for them. On the flip side, it's also diversification in different sectors of the market. If you have a thesis around placing bets on stocks, let's say, for example, during COVID, everybody wanted e-commerce, right? Everyone bought things online. Everyone played mobile games. Then why don't you go after the originators focused on e-commerce and mobile gaming? In which case, they did really well through COVID. They actually far superseded whatever projections they had. And so pretty safe. That optionality is always there. So there's lots of ways to diversify both on duration and on exposure. That example was pollen, correct? How do you think about what's interesting to investors and the consumers of your product in a sense? But when you think about the different underlyings and what they get exposure to, are there certain things that tend to interest people more than others? I think it's all about how we interpret the data that we have. And we collect and analyze everything. For example, we figure out how long it takes for a deal to close. Then we look at it, what asset class was that? What sector was that? What originator was that? We look at how much demand there was for an originator's deal. And all that helps dictate what we are going to try and chase after. uh, Because if there's excess demand on that side, we're going to try and fill it as best we can. So taking a very data-driven approach, not just to the analyzation or analysis of the performance of these originators, 
but also how we onboard them and who we onboard. It's all part of the equation. Uh, so it definitely does factor into it for sure. And then how do you think about the institutionalization of your platform on the investor side? Is this really for the individual investor who wouldn't have had access to this? Certainly the access to the data and transparency that you're providing, because this is institutional quality type access that you're providing. But is this also the domain of the wealth manager or institutional investor? And how do you think about the, the arc of that institutionalization on your platform over time? They look for different types of products at the end of the day. You alluded to a fund. Uh, a lot of these RIAs and wealth managers probably need a fund. They'd be hard-pressed to tell one of their clients to go direct. Even though it's a diversified note, they're still going direct. So that's going to be an area of concern for them, for sure. But at the same time, if you look at the asset managers, they play in this space a lot on the traditional securitization, like the traditional ABS market, asset-backed securitization market. And so what do they need? What are they looking for? You think about what goes in that type of transaction. We've done that in a lot of ways, just at a much smaller scale. So it's how do we translate the features and the products and the functionality that we've built for the retail side into the institutional markets where they can get the benefit as well, whether that's the asset surveillance that we do post-close, whether that's acting as a trustee for servicing. There's a lot of different ways we can cut this. I and mean, it's just trying to figure out the more deals that we do, the better chance we have of figuring out where our, our sweet spot is on that side as these originators get bigger and bigger and hit the traditional institutional markets. I think this span of investors also gets to the liquidity question. There's different investors have different risk appetites, different return appetites. With both of those things come different liquidity appetites. So how do you think about the liquidity side of this. And I know you mentioned a little bit about this a bit earlier. Every investor can choose what they want. But how do you think about that, given that you certainly over time will probably have different types of investors as well? And how do you make everybody on the platform happy? Yeah. So if you look at the last deal that we did on the institutional side, it was with Fatbrand. And that's a publicly traded company, uh, quick service restaurant franchise. They recently owned or bought Johnny Rockets through one of the securitizations we had done for them, which was great, a very well-known brand. And those investors in that deal are very, very institutional. And they're going to be your multi-billion dollar funds that are just looking for this type of paper. And it reaches a certain size and scale where we simply cannot service it anymore because we are just one fintech startup in the sea of fintech startups who haven't raised hundreds of millions of dollars like a bank would have to be able to use at their disposal. And so in that deal for Fat Brands number three, we partnered with Jefferies. Right? So we were the joint book runner on that deal. And Jefferies has the, the infrastructure and the capabilities to do all the things that these institutional investors want. So we helped fat brands go from $40 million securitization, bringing down their cost of capital at that first trade, doing a subordinated tranche, and now graduating them to an investment bank who can do our full service and get them everything that they need. That's a great story. And that's really where we want to do more of in the future. That's a really interesting data point as we think about the evolution of this space, not just for fintech innovation's sake, but also from the perspective of these banks. Do these banks sounds like Jeffrey certainly does, but did they view you as the the gateway to then helping th these originators institutionalize themselves so that they become bank lending ready effectively? The way I look at it is that we are a competitor to no one. That's for a good reason. We are actually very aligned from the incentive standpoint with every transaction party involved, whether you are an originator who needs that capital, an investor who wants to earn yields, or an underwriter who's here to structure. Uh, we help you at the end of the day, and we're not here to gouge you. From an investment bank standpoint, they look at it, they see all these different originators popping up on our retail side. They're like, ooh, that might be interesting if they get a little bit bigger. Uh, and that makes for a really good opportunity to have conversations with them over time, if that's something that they're interested in. We make sure that all of our originators are institutionally ready. So a big part of the structure that we had talked about at the beginning was really putting institutional-grade structures behind it. To have control of cash for an originator who has 
I don't know, $500,000 portfolio is very unique and rare because that is a very onerous part of the process. To convert their data into something that's fully standardized is also very, very painful that the average originator would not be able to do themselves. But we do it all for them. That means that when they're ready to hit the institutional markets for the very first time, they look and feel ready for anyone who may come. We've had a couple of case studies already of originators graduating out of retail and into the institutional markets. And the feedback from the investors who invested was literally, you cut down my time to diligence by 80% because the data was exactly as I expected it as for a first-time issuer. That's astounding. That is what we want to do here, to be able to get all these guys ready for the institutional markets when their time is ripe, and have everybody be really happy to be able to do a deal. And do the banks then view you as more friendly and helpful? It sounds like in that case, yes. But do they view you as competitors in a sense? Or are they not concerned that you're helping these originators graduate to when they're ready to take them? Honestly, unless I'm staffed with a structured credit desk of several hundred like JP Morgan is, I'd be hard-pressed to call our capital markets team a competitor just based on sheer numbers alone. I'd like to think that we punch above our weight, uh, but you need bodies to do this. Uh, it just takes time. It takes effort. And we will never staff up that team to compete with JP Morgan. It's just not our, in our interest. We've made that very clear to the banks, and I don't think they view it very competitive. They view it very accretive for them and their business over time. That's fascinating. The other piece of this, too, is you've talked about a number of different types of originators and their underlyings or various types of assets. Do you think that you can also help financialize or at the very least institutionalize certain assets that may not have been the domain of bank capital when you think about the different types of assets that you're securitizing and or helping to underwrite? I think that actually applies to probably most of our asset classes because we're going back to that Excel world. And it was the job of the junior analyst to basically go into Excel model hell and try and standardize something that has never been standardized before, attempted to be standardized before. And each one is different. Every single originator they work with comes with a different type of structure, a different type of loan tape. It's just a lot of work. We ran the math. Uh, to do one of these transactions is 975 hours of a junior analyst and a senior you know, managing director's time. Uh, but your margins are still 90% plus because the deals are so large. So it doesn't really matter. But if we can bring that down to like 250, think about how many more deals you can do. That really comes down to the goal to increase the velocity of transactions at about a third of the cost is the expectation. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Every one of these asset classes has gone through the ringer on our side in terms of standardizing and normalizing it. That has made it that much more attractive uh, for anyone who wants to step in and do this uh, to be able to do it efficiently and most importantly, profitably. So I think all of ours are getting to be institutionally ready through the work we've done on the data side to be able to make it that way. 975 hours. Wow. For one deal. One deal. So yeah, those analysts, they, they spend a very significant amount of time on a single deal. They, they don't see much. Certainly, they don't see daylight. Are there certain types of assets that you see on the horizon that are ripe for securitization that have not yet gotten to that point? It's a good question. It comes down to how far you want to go. We've looked at things like litigation finance as a very interesting asset class. With this type of stuff, a big part of it is actually predictable cash flow. Litigation finance tends to not have that. It is a bit like case by case, literally, no pun intended. It's very lumpy. The ability for us to be able to find predictable cash flows coming out of that and securitize it, there are definitely things that might be interesting. I think one of the companies that, that you've invested as well, which is Pipe, 
um, also is looking at it recurring cash flows to be able to do something like that. There can be definitely securitizations done for, for these burgeoning asset classes that ultimately I think would just help the industry. Securitization is a help, not a hurt. It brings institutional credibility to it. Yeah, I think it's a great segue into something that we're seeing happen, which is it feels to some extent debt capital markets are becoming a huge disruptor to equity capital markets, more so at the startup end, but even possibly all the way up the scale. Uh, as I think even equity capital markets changes from private companies all the way through to public companies, are we getting to a world where debt is going to eat equity and it's going to really change the complexion of how businesses get funded, how capital structures are created, and how people think about building their businesses? I think if there is a more free-flowing, vibrant debt market, uh, that naturally helps the people seeking capital. That's just inevitable. Um, but at the same time, on the flip side, if you look at from an investor's perspective, they have more optionality than ever. They have more diversification. They have more deal flow. That's not a bad thing either, even though yields may come down from just having that much velocity out there. Ultimately, you have the ability to actually spread your risk, and they may be in favor of that. From the underwriter standpoint, they're just here to do deals. More deals, the better. More revenue. And so all in all, everybody gets the net benefit of this. I think, to your point, equity investors may take the hit. But at the same time, if you look at some of these new asset classes where people are essentially it's lending per se, even though there's, there's not a lot of recourse on the other side, it is still kind of a loan to that company or an advance. They're not advancing enough. They're advancing 10%, 15%, whatever it may be, because anything more than that, you have a risk of blowing up your portfolio. So there's a, still an 85% gap that they probably, that company will need equity to, to fund because debt is not going to be enough to fund the growth as you expect it to be. But it is at least reducing the dilution that you take, which ultimately helps the, the founders and the people who run the company. And that's always a good thing. If you peer out into the future of what the evolution of private debt markets look like? What does that look like to you? I think you can extrapolate that to all of private capital markets, actually. If you look at the way the public markets are today, there was obviously a long period of time where everyone said, don't go public, don't go public. And that actually forced the private markets to grow up in a lot of ways. Uh, and it accelerated that. Now, obviously, there's things like SPACs that can take you public in a maybe less than great way. But hey, jury's still out on that. And that's probably a whole separate podcast. But at the very least, the private markets have matured in a lot of ways to be able to support transactions at scale and be a lot more efficient. Secondary markets are opening up more rapidly than ever. You're seeing the opportunity for startups in particular to be able to offer secondaries uh, for their employees well before they even go public. That creates for a better ecosystem. In general, happened or was able to happen because doing secondaries for companies is, is easier versus doing a private credit deal is a lot harder. There's a lot more nuances to it. And so that hasn't grown up yet. And that's what we're really trying to hear to solve for. But if we can do it, then it brings and elevates all of private markets to the point where I think it can be side by side with public markets as long as the data is there to facilitate that type of velocity of transaction. What will be that tipping point moment for you? Will it be certain types of investors coming into private debt markets or using your platform either for data or to actually invest into many of these originators' products? Yeah, I think for, for us, if we start to be able to see that we've taken down and been able to analyze a significant portion of this private credit market and have that in our wheelhouse from a data standpoint, that will make us indispensable to, to these types of transactions. And we're seeing it already. We've created the standard, the data dictionary for small business lending. We've created that for factor receivables. We know what type of data needs to come in for these. And if we can take that and just start to add more originators into that, 
then we're in a really good spot to be able to have a hand uh, and be relied upon as crucial to make these transactions happen. That's fascinating. I love the term data dictionary. Our risk team coined it because it was several hundred fields that they had to try and figure out and normalize it. They flogged through all of that. Um, but it, what came out was extremely clean and elegant. So, so credit to them for being able to pull that off. It sounds like you're really making this market so much more efficient, which is fantastic. And it's great to hear how you're doing this and impacting the alt investment space, particularly the alternative or private credit world. I, I always end this podcast by asking everyone what their favorite or most interesting alt investment is. What is that for you? For me, it's, uh, man, it's, it's interesting because I founded a tech company. I'm going to like the most low tech thing out there, but it's actually art. Uh, and I've become a big fan of that over COVID or pandemic times because you're just, your walls are bare. Like you, you want something to fill it up with color if you're here all day. So I've really gotten into the contemporary art scene. It's been a lot of fun being able to support up and coming artists, female artists, people of color. Those types of artists have been fantastic. And you see their upbringing and their life kind of shown on the canvas. It's very moving to watch. So that's been a, I've been a big fan, but again, no tech in that by any means. Well, you're hitting on something though, which is very interesting. So one is art is certainly an alternative investment and it's being financialized or productized by many platforms that, that we know about in this space. But you're also hitting on the culture piece, which is people actually have a connection to that specific piece or thing that they want to invest into. And they may invest in it, not just for financial returns, but for other reasons. With your own platform, are you seeing any of that happen as well? I think we've made it a point to actually bring on board a lot of emerging markets. We have exposure to originators in Africa and originators in Latin America. And we've seen a lot of interest in those, not just for the yield, but also because people think they're doing good for the world. It's a bit ESG angle to that as well, the social impact angle. When you hear the story of like Watu, the originators in Africa, they are providing almost many entrepreneurs who are uh, doing taxi cabs and things like that. And you obviously don't have cars there, so they prefer the, the scooters, the power bikes. That has been a fantastic story to tell that these investors are directly helping more and more people make a living for themselves there and succeed in, in their home country. So yeah, definitely an element of that, but you know, not quite as emotional as a collectible, like a Pokemon card or anything like that. Uh, it's not as direct, but there's a lot to be said about that. Well, I think that's really cool though, because private debt can often just seem very unemotional because you're not taking an ownership stake in a company like you are with equity investing. Not to say that, that there aren't private debt investments. There's plenty of private debt investments that actually are impact investments or have an ESG component to it. But the underwrite of it generally feels less emotional because you are trying to mitigate your risk and you're just looking for a yield. Whereas with the equity, you have the ownership and, and there's just a different tie to it. So it's great that you're able to combine those two things on the platform as well. We do our best. Yeah. And I think it is a big focus for us because there is so much arbitrage that's happening because there's just not a lot of banking infrastructure in those countries. But that means that people are swooping in and charging exorbitant cost of capital, which means that if we can do our job and, and help them and do better, I think it's a good outcome for everybody. So from helping to fund the Johnny Rockets and fat burgers of the world to funding people who are trying to uh, do ride sharing and ride hailing in, in emerging markets. This is fantastic. And Nelson, congrats on everything you've built. It's been amazing to see your progress over the years, your name change, your large capital raises on the equity and on platform side. So congratulations on everything you've done. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was great chatting with you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going mainstream.